You could never comprehend it all in one lifetime, but it's sure fun trying. Coming up, join me in celebrating the great art of the Western world, from the Stone Age to the Eiffel Tower. You just see the whole sweep of history and how one civilization and one art style and one people evolves into the other. My collaborator on a new TV series I've just released joins us for a look at what it's been like to frame the great art of Europe for public TV. Also, a pair of German tour guides helps us to see what makes Hamburg such a great city to explore. It's traditional, but it's also very forward-looking, modern, a city that reinvents itself. It's the most worldly and cool city. And New York Times sports journalist John Branch tells us how he covers the kinds of people that are drawn to the adrenaline rush of extreme sports. A lot of people I report on do things that I, I wouldn't do myself. Come along for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In just a bit, we're going to celebrate the release of a TV series I've just finished and I'm so proud of that profiles the greatest art and architecture of Europe. And sports journalist John Branch tells us about some of the craziest thrill-seekers he's met. Lately, I've been singing the praises of many of Europe's second cities when the A-list cities get just too crowded to fully enjoy. Like the old song goes, how are you going to keep them down on the farm once they've seen Paris? But they might also enjoy Marseille, or Lyon, or Glasgow, Belfast, Krakow, and Porto. When you go to Germany, sure, you've got to see Berlin, but don't overlook Hamburg. It started in the 9th century with a castle built by Charlemagne, survived invasions and fires over the centuries, and today is Germany's number two city, with more than 5 million people in its metro area. It's also a major port where the Elbe River meets the North Sea. Joining us to explore Hamburg on Travel with Rick Steves are tour guides Holger Zimmer and Carolina Marburger. Thanks for, Thanks for having, having us. us. Yep. First, let's just hear your, your take, because you both live in Berlin. Carolina, what does Hamburg mean to you? It always has been my escape when growing up in the provinces, and I think that makes Hamburg unique. In Germany, it stands for freedom, um, being cool. That's what Hamburg, the city, the city of the port, that's the gate to the world. It's the most worldly and cool city. And a port city tends to have more influence coming in. Exactly. It's, it's, it's where the, the sailor's quarter is, the craziness, the freedom. Isn't there a zone called the Freiheit or something like that in Hamburg? The, the Große Freiheit, the Great Freedom. Is yes, that, and that's, that's, a, that's where the Beatles were actually performing club, and yeah. all that. Yes. A, okay, now Holger, yeah. what does Hamburg mean to you? Well, you know, living in Berlin, it's all wonderful in the capital city, but once I'm in Hamburg, I'm by the river and I hear the seagulls and I see the big ships and the tall ships. It's like maritime, it's movement, it's connection. And it really, for me, like I kind of grew up there. My first ever like living apartment outside my, my parents' home was Hamburg, playing music, listening to music. So it is connected to just like the first steps you take into the real world. And that was wonderful. And speaking of steps you take into the rest of the world, if there are German-Americans listening right now, there's a very good chance their ancestors left Germany from Hamburg. Absolutely. It's an estimated that about 5 million people went through Hamburg, Bremen, Bremerhaven, kind of out to the New World. And so quite a good chance is they, they came through Hamburg. And that's quite often when we take people on a tour. They say, yes, I know my, my great-granddad, he went through Hamburg. And yeah. they, they look it up there. What impresses me when I go to Hamburg is how few Americans go there. Why is it that Americans don't think about Hamburg? 
it's just not known. Like Americans, when they think of Germany, they think about the South, Bavaria, Lederhosen, beer and all of that. So Hamburg is kind of like sidelined. But for German tourists, it is a big thing. And I love going there. And it is really fascinating to see when we start our tours there in Hamburg. Quite few people have been going there. But once they see it, they say, wow, now we know what this city is all about. Because it's traditional, but it's also very forward-looking, modern, a city that reinvents itself. I think part of the American view of, of Germany is shaped by the part of Germany we occupied after the war. And that was Bavaria. So if an American had any relative that was in Germany, he was in Bavaria. So you got Lederhosen, and you got slap dancing, and you got you know beer gardens. That's quite Munich, isn't it? But it's also because Germany is a federal country with an incredible diverse set of cultures, and Northern German culture is because of what you just said, Rig, indeed very often overlooked. But for us, it is just another part of German culture. And, and well yes, it is, it's it, very yeah. much like Scandinavian British a little bit, but um, yeah, nonetheless, it, for us, it's very German. It has that, that Nordic feel. I mean, it's yeah. right on the border of uh, Denmark, right? It I mean, actually was literally next to Denmark because Altona, now a part of Hamburg, for 200 years was Denmark, literally. So you get that interesting flavor. And it was a Hanseatic town. Well, what is a Hanseatic port? Hanseatic, well, it belonged to the Baltic Hanseatic League that basically was the dominant economic power in the Baltic Sea um, in the Middle Ages up until the 15th century, maybe. However, Hanseatic City is still what Bremen, Lübeck and Hamburg are still called. Mm -hmm. And Hanseatic still is a term you would use today in German, Hanseat and Hanseat or Hanseatisch. And it still implies a certain culture and way of life and a way, for example, has to do with merchants. There's Uh a very proud merchant elite that has nothing to do with aristocracy. Mm -hmm. They are really against it even. Um, It means you are reliable. A handshake is everything you need to do. You have a certain sense of self-irony and all that means... And this tradition is still alive in a way that Hamburg still to this day is a very affluent town, a very rich town. Because of hundreds and hundreds of years of trading, Hamburg still is the third largest port in all of Europe. Mm -hmm. That's where the goods come in. It's a huge part of the city, which is you don't really see if you just walk around. But if you, for example, go to the new Philharmonic Hall on on the platform and you can look out and you see how far... The containers, the whole terminal stretches. It's a huge part of Hamburg's economy still, and you still feel this vibe of trading in a city. Yeah. And, you I know, think it's actually interesting to think of the port city because that sometimes throws people off because there are port cities and port cities. In Hamburg, I always tell people to understand that the richest people live on the Elbchaussee and they watch, they look onto what? The port because the port is the beating heart and it's the pride of the hamburgers. It's not like a port that you shy away from because it's the dirty thing that makes right. you rich but you don't want to see. Oh. In Hamburg, it's all you see. It makes, makes us more happy than anything to see the industrial port. You know, we were talking about this Hanseatic heritage. What is Hafen City? Because there's a oh, yeah, Hafen. That's, what does that mean? Yeah, Hafen means harbor and city is like the new part, like a and, stadt. And this is city. a development. It's and about a third of Hamburg is bigger now because absolutely. of this development. So they, they reclaim basically old kind of used land that now the, the modern terminal with the computers and stuff don't need anymore. And they redevelop it. There's university there. There's new uh, apartment blocks. It really will expand the city by like 45,000 inhabitants. So it's a new development that you can actually also overlook from this Alp Philharmonic Hall. And you see the way forward, you know, kind of more biking, more green living. That's also what Hamburg stands for. It's a futuristic extension of the city, taking the industrial wasteland and turning it into something that can inspire city planners all over the world, really. And Carolina, I remember standing on a bridge and there's these brick old uh, warehouses that just goes forever. And you think, whoa, this is 100, 200 years old and it, it's massive. 
And then that's just the entryway to this modern city. Yes, it's the warehouse district, the Speicherstadt, which is a UNESCO heritage site, which sometimes confuses people. It's not that old. It's just from the 1880s to the 1920s. Yet it was developed at a time when Germany just became Germany as a nation. Mm -hmm. And therefore the the free free custom zone had to be removed. And so the Speicherstadt, the warehouse district, is a red brick sort of storage house district galore um, that is beautiful and now, of course, loses its relevance, but has become just a site of museums and event places, restaurants and all that. And then it's adjacent to that new development. And we do need to remember when Germany was united in 1870 or so, overnight, Europe has an industrial superpower and it needed a port and the port was Hamburg. And the Hamburg people wanted still to retain their tax-free status. You know, that was very important. That They made sure that that's why they got the Speicherstadt going, ah, the right. largest warehouse district back in the day without paying taxes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Holger Zimmer and Carolina Marburger. We're talking about Germany's, you could say Germany's number two city after Berlin, Hamburg. When we think about Hamburg, a lot of us think about sex and drugs and Beatles and Reeperbahn, and I, I know that there is a tradition for young people in Germany to go to Hamburg, and you don't go for a crazy Friday night. You go for three days where you don't sleep, and it's just insane. Carolina, you were a teenager in Hamburg. What is that, uh, this Reeperbahn uh, wild weekend? Well, it used to be that way, definitely. So we, we went to the Reeperbahn and we went to the pubs on Hamburger Berg. Maybe not the Reeperbahn itself, but sort of the side streets. And then you found bars and then you danced through the night indeed. And what was then the Jumomojo Club, which had the best dance floor jazz of all times. And you waited until the subway would run again because and that would only in the morning. So okay. you definitely went for the morning long. hours. Or you went, of course, on Sunday mornings, you went to the fish market that starts at 5.30 and you need nothing better than a, than a breaded fish roll um, that is the best thing against a hangover. To soak up and all that. <laughs> and then, and, yeah, the fish market is the place to go. So yes, it has this kind of seedy nightlife district tradition in a way, just because it was like a port town, the sailors were there. Like Amsterdam, Zedite, you know. But it also, let's not forget it, it's still a musical city. It is like the home of Johannes Brahms, you know, one of the amazing romantic composers. Gustav Mahler was there. We had, of course, the Beatles. And you got theater. Yeah, but you also still to this day have like an amazing um, plethora of great music, like new Uh modern bands coming from Hamburg. So that is also something worth checking out. And I think uh, a lot of people remember the Beatles getting their start in Hamburg. Uh, sadly for Beatle fans, the museum closed, and there's essentially nothing to see about the Beatles in Hamburg anymore. In a way, but you still have the recordings, you have them singing in German, and you know without Hamburg and them playing, like, what is it, three, four, five times a night for two years straight, more or less, like, well, they were just honing their craft, and they could play every key change that ever was invented, and they were good to go. Like, without Hamburg and getting their training there, there would be no Beatles. Danke schön for Hamburg. Yeah, All right, yeah. for music lovers. Hamburg is also a very green city. It's a wonderful city, even like with a family. has wonderful old buildings and has a lake in the middle of town. You can actually go sailing right in Hamburg, you know, in the city. You can go canoeing. And there's a wonderful park, uh, Planten and Blomen. But remember, Hamburg was the site of a horrific firestorm, one of the worst bombings in 1943 in World War II. Tell us about that that day. Eight nights, seven days, roughly, in 43, uh, Operation Gomorrah, as it was called. Gomorrah, uh, yeah. Um, pretty much uh, British bombers destroyed the city, like huge parts of the inner city. So it has also a modern feel to it. But still, I have to say, you still see like the damages in a way by new architecture, new big highways being built after that. And so when you see memorial. the new, you can almost think that's where the bombing was. That's where was. the old were, were. But still, I think, to me, Hamburg is a beautiful city, also compared to Berlin, which is a bit more kind of gritty in some parts. So Hamburg, for me, I would recommend it definitely in, in many respects to go there. Come 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about Hamburg, a city that I would say is underappreciated by American travelers heading to Germany. Our guides have been Holger Zimmer and Carolina Marburger. Holger and Carolina, let's just finish with a favorite experience that you'd like your guest to enjoy next time you took them to Hamburg. So I would take you down to the Landungsbrücken and jump on the ferry number 62, which takes you to Övelgönne. Övelgönne is the old museum harbor. And from there, you can start walking on the incredible Elbstrand, which is the Elbe Beach, literally a sandy beach by which you can sit down, have a sip or walk and see the incredible container ships pass you by on the way to the harbor. And the Lange Brücke, or I forgive my German, but that's the famous pier where the emigration happened. Every tourist goes to this this Yes, big Landungsbrücken pier. is basically where everything starts from. You might not want to spend too much time there, no, but, but that's where you go to get on the ferry. Catch the ferry and go to the beach. Great exactly. idea. Holger. I would take people up to St. Michael, the Michel, which is the famous landmark of Hamburg. That's the huge church with the largest clock tower that sailors would see rolling into Hamburg port. And you can walk up like 452 steps and have a nice view across old Hamburg, the new town, the port, the Philharmonie Hall. So great views and you're right in the heart of the old town. And the name of this church again? St. Michael, Michael, or the Michel. Great idea. Holger Zimmer, Carolina Marburger, Dankeschön. Sehr gerne, herzlichen Dank. Thanks a lot. We have a link to Carolina's Berlin Histories Facebook page with our show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll look at what makes some people go for extreme sports with a New York Times journalist in just a bit. But first, join me in celebrating the greatest art of Europe. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We've just finished a two-year-long project producing our six-hour miniseries for public television called Rick Steves' Art of Europe. For decades now, when I've got some serious writing to do involving European history or art, I collaborate with my first travel partner, Gene Openshaw. Gene's an amazing writer. He spearheaded the writing of the script of our new art series, and I thought I'd invite him into our radio studio for a kind of celebration of a job well done. Our long-awaited miniseries, The Art of Europe, is airing across the nation on public television, and Gene joins us now to give us a sort of insider's peek into the creative process of writing this series. Gene and I did the typical grand tour of Europe together right after we graduated from high school. Gene and I go way back in collaborating on art projects, and back in the 1990s, we, we wrote a book called Mona Winks, and that was guided tours to Europe's most exhausting and frightening museums, <laughs> the big cultural obligations. And we were just working day and night on that. I remember, in fact, I remember one moment in our, in our twin room after a couple of long, long days of Rome. We both were laying in bed awake but not ready to get out of bed yet, and, and Gene said shall I hand you your laptop? As if I would be getting a little more writing done before breakfast. But Gene's co-authored our Europe 101 art book. Our, our newest one is Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces. And now this project, inspiring so many travelers to appreciate the great art of Europe. Gene, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Hasn't it been fun to, to grow up with our love of art kind of together from the days when we were just teenage dorks running around Europe with, with sneaking into churches from the back door yeah, to, to now? It is. You know, and when you mentioned that thing about Mona Winks, we were on a mission to make art accessible to people because when we made our first trip, uh, nearly 
50 years ago. Yeah, it was 50 years ago today. (laughs) Gene and Rick taught the the tourists to (laughs) to play, to to, to enjoy the art. Yeah, But we were, you know, we were just a couple suburban kids. We, at least I came from a blue-collar upbringing, knew nothing about art. We went over to Europe. We wandered around hopelessly lost in these huge museums. Nothing was really even in English back then. And so it inspired us to go, people need to know what this art is about, because it would greatly up their appreciation of Europe. And, and I think that right from the start, that got us on track. You know, I remember thinking, who cares about these old buildings? But it's raining, it's free, and I'm going to step inside. <laughs> yeah. So you're standing there to, at the entryway to a great cathedral. And I remember looking and thinking, boy, this is old, and this is really big. Yeah. <laughs> who's, this, who's this statue of a guy with a spear? Yeah. yeah. And, and then we know now, as after careers as tour guides and so on, that the more you bring to your sightseeing, the more you get out of it. That's kind of fundamental. The more you bring with you, the better experience you're going to have. People want to know, how do you get into the Louvre for less money? Well, it's going to cost everybody the same. But if you know what you're looking at, you'll enjoy it a lot more. Yeah. And this art series ended up being, I think, something like the harvest of these last few decades of of what we learned as we traveled and our experience in in our way being teachers as tour guides and yeah. writing books yeah. and so on. And this art series is sort of the culmination of those years of knowledge. So I remember a couple of years ago, I we just had lunch together or something, and I was thinking out loud and proposed it. And you, you said, sure, you jumped all over it. <laughs> uh, I, I had other stuff I had to do. I thought, well, Gene can basically write the script. Tell us how that whole script writing process and challenge was for you. Yeah, silly me, because it really was a challenge. I mean, it seems pretty easy because you go, yeah, I know all this stuff. The hard part isn't writing it. It's condensing it into, you know, this is six hours, which is a lot of a lot of material. But when it comes down to it, you know, you're having to squeeze 5,000 years of history into 10 minutes per century and make it flow. And, and, we and don't that want to, difficult. We don't want to dumb it down. We want to make it accessible. But we have to respect the importance of teaching it right. And you can't dance around the awkward and complicated things. But it's got to be, it's got to be compelling. It's got to keep people's interest. Do you remember our, our mentor, Professor Stuffy Balding? That's right. <laughs> That's right. Our, we, our we, fictional, this guy that we made up of, of this boring art history professor who was a stickler for all the names and dates and everything, yeah. but was totally boring. And we went, well, we need to make the names and dates accurate, but we don't want it to be Professor Stuffy, Stuffy. Balding talking like this. We, it, needs to, it needs to flow and it needs to be visually interesting. Well, there was a Professor Stuffy Balding. His name was Kenneth Clark. <laughs> and he produced this wonderful series yeah. that inspired me because yeah. I've got this weird uh, curiosity, but it didn't, it couldn't hold many people's attention today because he was just like you caricatured there. And uh, you and I work very hard. And as tour guides, we kind of know that, that people have a lot of things coming at them and they don't have a, a terribly long attention span and it's hot and it's crowded and I want yeah. a gelato. Yeah. So now we we were wondering how long should it be? Well, today the script is finished. The show is out. It's six hours and that's 90 pages of script. But but we said, well, Gene, just write it at the whatever level it comes in in. And I mean, you it was in your court, and you came back with a 200-page script. And it was, yeah. I, I respect your writing so much, I thought, I can't touch this. But it was two times as long. I didn't know what we were going to do. It was daunting. Yeah. It wasn't even just the, the writing was long. It's that we had so, there's so much great art and history. <laughs> and But we did it, and we cut it down, and we cut it down, and now... 
it actually comes in at these one-hour chunks. It was kind of um, a scary thing for me, frankly, to have to decide what are the modules going to be because we didn't know until we wrote it who How deserves it the hours. Yeah. But we did it. The first hour was from Stone Age until till Greece, through ancient Greece, including Egypt. The next hour was all of Rome, 500 B.C. to 500 A.D., the Roman Empire. The next hour was another 1,000 years, the Middle Ages, from 500 to 1500, and then the Renaissance, and then Baroque, with kind of the flip side of Baroque, the Neoclassical Age, and then the most exciting hour, I think, from Romantic, uh, you know, mid-1800s up until today. Now, when you look at that, we had to nail that down early. How did it how did it come in? Well, we just had to make hard cuts, you know. You're, if, you're, if you're talking about uh, Egypt, the beautiful bust of Nefertiti. Hey, sorry, princess, you know, you're on the cutting room floor. Yeah, you know, if you're choosing Gothic churches, there's so many of them. Wait, Westminster Abbey isn't going to even make the cut? Right. No, nope, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Titian, okay, we talked about Titian, but I would have loved to see more Titian. Yeah, yeah. I, everything here. I just wanted to say Titian the Venetian. Because <laughs> there's fun little ways to help people remember. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Gene Openshaw, who's the lead writer of our new series, Rick Steves' Art of Europe. And this is a six-hour mini-series airing now across the United States on public television. And I'm just taking a moment to celebrate with Gene this exciting project that we've finished. And now travelers all over the country are enjoying it thanks to public broadcasting. But Gene, when we were doing this show, now we've got six hours. And you've looked at it many times and worked on the script from start to finish. What, what little moments are you most excited about to share with our audience on TV? What I like is when there's a perfect marriage between words and images, because that's really what this is. We're not just telling the story through words. We had to also pick the exact right image that says it. You can say the Renaissance was an optimistic uh, time, confident people gazing into the future, and it's great, but what you want to do is find an image like Michelangelo's David that says that, you know? The Renaissance was a confident time. Well, then you see David, and he's yeah. plant, has standing there, and he's strong, and he's muscular. His toes are actually gripping the pedestal. He's, he's uh, ready he's to do intense, it. He's just intense, ready to do it. His powerful right hand. And then when you say, and he's gazing the future, and then you've got this close-up of the face. And yeah. that's, those are the segments that I think work the yeah, best. And, and you're so good at, at giving meaning to something like that. I mean, you can all say that's beautiful. But when you're looking into the eyes of David... You're looking into the eyes of Renaissance man. And what is David thinking and why was it important to Florence? And what does that mean in the sweep of history? I mean, to me, David shows how Europe in 1500 was ready to be done with the Middle Ages and ready to charge boldly into the modern era. And the way that you can see it visually says exactly that. You know, one of the great things about this show is people might think, oh, it's it's an art history course. It's a slideshow. It's not a slideshow. Um, you're telling the story through the—it's the. It's like when uh, like a director is filming something and he directs your eye from feature to feature yeah, yeah. to tell you the story, exactly what you need to see, and we've been able to do that. And art is a conduit to the past. I, I think it's—the value of history is so important. People—you know, the famous thing, if you don't respect history, you're doomed to repeat it or whatever— the the art takes you back and it gives you a context and an empathy with, with what was happening. And, you know, you can look at medieval history and think it's all churches. But you can look at, there's a tapestry that we featured. 
in the Carnivalet Museum in Paris. To me, it's the, it's the exquisite other side of that fearful middle age church oriented stuff it's sensuous it's humanism the lady and the unicorn tell us what do you look yeah. at when you see the lady and the unicorn yeah it's like you say there's so much when people think of the middle ages they tend to think of churches yeah. it was the age of faith it certainly right. was but then you have this tapestry which is a series of tapestries that show this beautiful woman amid a beautiful garden flowers and vines and it's her experiencing the five senses. For the first time, she's experiencing taste. She eats some candy or something like that. She's playing some music on a harpsichord. And in each of these things, she's, it's like a new world is opening up. And touch. And touch. She's actually stroking the unicorn's horn. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. This is 500 years ago, <laughs> and they had the, the confidence. We're just giggling like a couple of 18-year-olds <laughs> yeah, the first time we saw yes. it. But this is a very big deal. Humanism is one of my favorite things to remind people because humanism was, was controversial. I mean, no, you're supposed to bow down in church, but now humanism takes over, and that was the foundation of our modern age, I would say. And the lady in the unicorn is exactly that. It's just showing, it's stepping out of the medieval period and into a, into a beautiful and open-ended future. And the, and the tragic thing is that so many travelers today, they have the opportunity to go to Europe, and they look at these great artistic masterpieces, and they cannot see it in the context of that age. Almost a, a good side, a positive side, the fact that this we had to condense this yeah. into six hours is that you just see the whole sweep of history and how one civilization and one art style and one people evolves into the other. And it unfolds like a time-lapse flower. It's kind of blossoming and ever-changing. And, and you can see that evolution. And that's one of the beauties of it being so condensed. And we don't need to be, or we've determined not to be, Professor Stuffy Balding. We've had Professor Stuffy Balding, three of them <laughs> from three different universities, read the script. So we know they're, not, they're, they're okay yeah. with what we say. We had to vet it that way, yes. which is really important, and I'm thankful for that. But we got to, we got to build a Gothic cathedral out of 13 tourists. Right. Oh, it's one of my favorite things to do as a tour guide. You need six columns, six buttresses, and one spire. And then when you've got it all in place, you understand the, the whole idea of the skeletal support of a Gothic church and the importance of a pointed arch. And to be able to show that in a, in a fun-loving, creative way is just great. Uh, another moment for me, Gene, when we were doing this was to go in tight on an Impressionist painting and look at the brushwork and the treatment of the color. Yeah. As I recall, we have Monet's water lilies and these beautiful things that show the the water lilies floating on the pond in his uh, garden in Giverny. And you're looking at it and you go, this is beautiful. I just feel like I'm immersed in it. And then, like you say, you cl you get close up on one of these water lilies and you realize it's just this smudge of red and uh, white paint and, and, and green paint. But then you back up and those colors resolve in your eye and it looks like a water lily. And we said, voila. 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 <laughs> I love that because it looks like an abstract kaleidoscopic explosion of color up close, like some kid just went crazy with the brush. Pull back, and you see the magic of Impressionism. And then, with that one example, our viewers, our travelers, when they do their, their, their adventure through Europe and they have this chance in a lifetime to go to Monet's Gevernay Garden and, and, the, and the Orsay Gallery and see all these masterpieces... 
they understand why it's so special. My colleague and longtime friend and collaborator Gene Openjaw is our special guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Gene was my original travel buddy on our first non-chaperoned trip to Europe right out of high school back in the summer of 1973. And in the last couple of years, he wrote the script to our new six-part TV series called Rick Steves' Art of Europe. Gene also co-authors my illustrated art books, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces and Europe 101. Gene will be back with us again next week to discuss the statues, mosaics, and frescoes of Rome with local tour guide and Rome expert Francesca Caruso. Ancient Rome's the topic of our second hour in the new TV series. Gene, you have worked really hard on this, and I'm so thankful for... I mean, it's like you wrote a 200-page book, and then you had to bring it down to 90 pages, and now we had to put it all to images, and it's so exciting to have it out there and in the public. What is your hope that our audience will have as a takeaway that'll make all of this work and investment uh, worthwhile? Well, I think of myself as a traveler, especially a young traveler, craving the kind of knowledge that would make, that would bring this art to life. And so that's what I'm hoping this would do. I'm hoping it will teach travelers. It probably could be used for students of art history. It'd be a great overview of it in an art history course. And maybe even, wouldn't this be great, it would even inspire other artists who can look at work that's done in the past, learn from it, be inspired by it, and then go on and create their own art. Wouldn't that be great? You know, that's one of my favorite goals or triumphs as a tour guide is to be with a traveler who's never been to Europe for two weeks, seeing all this cultural wonder, all this great art, and you find people who have never written a poem, they write a poem. People have never sketched something. They sketch something beautiful. People who look through their camera as if they are an artist framing something to take home and cherish. And if our art series lets people be inspired by people who have done that through the ages, we can join the party. We can make life more multidimensional, more beautiful. In, in a way, when you're looking at a beautiful piece of art and you're looking at the pure beauty, you're experiencing the very same things that people did in the past when that art was made. You're like a medieval peasant going into a Gothic church and going, wow, the soaring arches, the, the light through the stained glass, and that sense of, of the soul being uplifted. Or you're just like the very first cavemen that were painting on cave walls and the sense of wonder that that would have been when people went in and they saw a bison or an antelope being portrayed on the wall and flickering across the wall of the cave by torchlight. And when we see a piece of that art now, we can experience that same sense of wonder. Gene, our six-hour series started in one of those caves, just awestruck by the wonder of people, people like you and me. I mean, not that long ago, really, in the, in the, in the vast span of things, doing those cave paintings, and we finished with gorgeous street art, filling entire empty sides of buildings huh. all over Europe. Interesting, yes. It's like the graffiti on a cave wall is now, in the present day, the, the very popular art form, which is graffiti scribbled on walls in, in towns. And thanks to your work and your experience, and thanks to our friends in public broadcasting, we're able to connect the dots from those early cave paintings to that street art that decorates Glasgow, Scotland, or Athens and Greece today, and from celebrate the creative spirit of humankind. Thank you, Gene. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Rick. 
We'll give you more of the background of the new Rick Steves Art of Europe series over the next two weeks here on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll take a close look at the art of Rome next week. And in two weeks, TV producer Simon Griffith describes what it was like to film an art series in Europe during the pandemic. There's also a backstory to the thrill seekers that we sometimes get to see in action, jumping out of airplanes or working their way up or down sheer mountain slopes. John Branch writes for the New York Times about ordinary people doing extraordinary things at the edges of the sporting world. He's back with us on Travel with Rick Steves to share a few more of their stories next. Hello, my name is Lale Surman Aram, and I'm from Istanbul, Turkey, and I'd like to teach you a tongue twister in Turkish now. It is kartal kalkar dal sarkar dal sarkar kartal kalkar. Eagle flies out, the branch lifts back. Eagle flies in back, the branch hangs down. And it goes as kartal kalkar dal sarkar dal sarkar kartal kalkar. His reporting on everything from rock climbers and base jumpers to skiers tumbling in avalanches will often leave you wondering what motivates these thrill seekers. Do they have a death wish? John Branch has won nearly every major journalism prize for his sports reporting for the New York Times. Of the thousands of stories he's reported on, John gathered a few of his favorites in his book Side Country, Tales of Death and Life from the Back Roads of Sports. He joins us now from his home studio just north of San Francisco. John, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, Rick. So you collected 20 favorite articles out of the some 2,000 that you've written for the New York Times. There are the small-town coaches, inspiring young people, and the amazing bowlers, uh, but it seems like a lot of people ended up in your favorites who either were doing death-defying things or things that were actually deadly. You know, I just watched the, the documentary Free Solo about climbing El Capitan with, without a safety rope, and the climber Alex seemed ready to die for the challenge. What's your take on, on adventure sports and adrenaline and death? Yeah, I am really taken by people who do things that I can't imagine doing myself. And so there are a lot of stories here that um, sort of tickle that, that funny bone for me. You mentioned Alex Honnold, who, who climbed El Capitan without ropes and who's you know, now become famous as this free solo climber, uh, whether he has a death wish. And he's very, he's very thoughtful about this, um, as the movie talks about and as I've talked about with him, because I've gotten to know him a little bit, too. Does he have a death wish? No, not at all. Um, he just sees the world, I think, a little bit differently than you and I might. And he sees what he's doing as relatively safe because he knows the protocols he has in place. I think most of these people don't see what they're doing as crazy um, just right. because they're in it and they, and they respect the process of how they go about doing it. And if some Yahoo is going to do it, yeah, they're going to be dead next week. But if you're a professional and, and um, knowing your limits, um, I suppose it is not risk-free, but it's not really reckless. Right. And I'll give you a crazy example. I've just been in Switzerland talking to Olympic athletes, talking to them about what scares them. And when you talk to a downhill skier, you ask them what sport in the Olympics would scare you. These people go 90 miles an hour down a sheet of ice and they say, oh, I would never do the half pipe. Or you talk to a half pipe snowboarder and they would say, I would never, ever think about going over a ski jump. (laughs) They're all scared of something else. And I think it's because, to your point, they don't know exactly what that entails. And they know how to be safe in their area of expertise. Exactly. You know, in your Don Wall article, you talked about um, some hikers or some climbers from 1970 or something. Dean Caldwell said, uh, everything is padded and comes with warning labels. 
I can see how that, for a certain kind of person, you'd almost be belligerent about that. Everything is padded, and they keep saying, be careful. Yeah, and uh, I think people say that even more and more with, you know, helicopter parents and everything else, all the safety yeah. restrictions that we put on kids and, and, and adults. People, I think, are looking to sort of do something free and, and feel like they're doing something independent, and that, that scares them. I think there's something liberating about doing something that scares you. But then you, you quoted Warren Harding in the, that same 1970 climb. He reached the summit, and somebody asked him, why do you do this? And he said, because we're insane. Yeah, there is a, the old Yosemite climbers, um, I think, were a little bit insane. They were the, the, uh, at the edge of the frontier there, and they were the, the ones who were first climbing El Capitan, and nobody else was like them. Now, of course, you go there at certain times of year, and El Capitan is covered with yeah. people like, like ants on the side of a wall there. Everybody's climbing it. But back then, they were pioneers. I mean, when there, when nobody had climbed Mount Everest, there weren't um, ropes in place for you and ladders in place. Everest is a, is a great example. If you've seen those pictures of people, you know, the conga line. Of Mount oh, yeah, Everest, the conga couldn't line. Have, couldn't have imagined 30 or 40 years ago. No. And somebody did it 30 or 40 years ago. Say, what is this? Just take me, you know, send them back to Disneyland or something like that. But in your Don Wall article, you, you talked about the reward, why people do this. And, and in fact, you said, there's the adulation and a warm shower. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it's interesting. All these people that I've, I've written about over the years that do these kind of daring things, nobody I've met is doing it for fame or infamy. Or if I thought they were, I probably wouldn't be covering them. They have their own personal motivations. And people like the guys that climbed the Don Wall, they studied that wall for years and worked for years and years and years on how they're going to make their way up there someday that way. And so when they started doing it, they were doing it with an audience of three or four or five. And then I showed up, I caught wind of it and showed up. And um, as the New York Times started to write about it during their 17-day expedition, suddenly television trucks started to show up. We sort of created, I think, by accident, a little bit of a story where they were not looking for any of that. Mm -hmm. We kind of foisted it on them. I mean, when you fall into that culture, you egg each other on, you inspire each other, you, you conspire together. And there's a game plan. It can be a many years project, I would suppose. Yeah, I think that's true for a lot of these people. Certainly the Don Wall, certainly people like Olympians who spend four years for one moment in time. Um, right. But yeah, they're, they're trying to game plan this out. And again, not doing it for fame or riches. Who's, who's paying you a million dollars to go climb El Capitan? Nobody. Right. I, you know, that's funny because when I was a kid, Evil Knievel, I think he was doing it for fame and riches, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, I think he, I think he, was. Uh, he was. He was making sure that all the television cameras were on before he started, yes. Some of these guys, it's just an annoyance. It's an annoyance. And yeah, I think with the Don Wall guys, they were not pleased that all these people were showing up. And at one point, Tommy Caldwell, about halfway up the Don Wall, about eight or nine days into it, dropped his phone from 2,000 feet and joked that it was an accident. I'm not sure it was really an accident. He was tired ah. of getting uh, text messages and calls. Yeah. Well, I would, I would suppose it would get in the way of their concentration and actually be uh, contribute to the risk. Absolutely. And, and yeah. you know, we talk about things like Kodak Courage, where, you know, our... Are yeah. we influencing people because we've put a camera on them? And are we making things more dangerous to them? Well, I kept thinking about that on Free Solo with Alex. Mm -hmm. And I think the movie, the filmmakers there, you know, Chai and Jimmy Chin both said that. They said, are we contributing somehow yeah. potentially to his demise? So it, it took on a sub a subplot. Are we all part of the this? And if something goes wrong, are we sort of complicit? Yeah. And I think as a journalist, I'm very much aware of, I do not want to be part of the story and I don't want no. to influence the story. I want to be a fly in the wall if yeah. I can. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with John Branch. He's written 2,000 articles on sports for the New York Times. 20 of his favorites are featured in his book, Side Country, Tales of Death and Life from the Back Roads of Sport. 
John won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on an avalanche in the Cascade Mountains just outside of Seattle, and that took the lives of, of three prominent skiers uh, on a quiet Sunday morning in February a few years ago. He's joining us from his home in California right now on Travel with Rick Steves. We have links to John's work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. So, John, I want to talk about a few other death-defying sports and athletes that you've reported on. And I'm curious, how do you get access to these stories? And is it a kind of ambulance chasing? Are you looking for a disaster? I would like to think not, um, but certainly if there has been a disaster, and I've written about you know the avalanche in Washington, about um, people who have died on Everest, I think there's a compelling story there. And how I try to frame it to the families and the people left behind is that I'd like to tell the full story of what happened. These people may have been a a blurb in a newspaper or on a scroll mm-hmm. across a, a screen on CNN or something. You know, we all live deeper and fuller lives than that. And so what can I do to help portray these people in an honest and full light? And that's that's where I try to go with these. Because it is a culture. Even I remember my roommate in college was a, was a rock climber and, and one of his buddies died. And, you know, the, the attitude was he died doing what he loved, you know. And it was, they sort of know it's a package deal. You got to embrace life and uh, you live life to the fullest and it comes with some dangers. It's, it's kind of beyond me, but that is... It is a culture. Yeah, it's a little bit beyond me too, which I think is why I'm fascinated by them because mm-hmm. I, you know I, a lot of people I report on do things that I, I wouldn't do myself. And so I, I'm trying to tap in, I think, a little bit uh, selfishly to figure out what makes these people tick. And they do it even if it's illegal. I mean, you wrote a fascinating article called Lost Brother. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, Lost Brother was about Dean Potter, who was a premier climber and a base jumper and a wingsuit flyer where he would jump off the cliffs and fly with one of those kind of winged suits as much as he could. And he was a big proponent of, of legalizing base jumping in the national parks. Most of the best base jumping spots in the U.S. are in the national parks. They're in places like Yosemite or Yellowstone or Zion, the Grand Canyon, and it's illegal there. And um, so he would do it in the dark of night in Yosemite mostly because he'd have less risk of being caught and being spotted. And uh, he and a, a fellow climber of his were, were killed um, a few years ago in Yosemite when they both followed each other. They jumped off a cliff and were flying with their wingsuits and tried to cut through a notch in the uh, in one of the walls in Yosemite Valley and and miscalculated and um, were killed. And that became a story I wrote called Lost Brother, again, trying to illuminate these lives and what made them tick. You have the opportunity to talk to their loved ones. It's like visiting an airplane crash site and piece through the, the debris. It is. You're trying to piece together not only what happened, but also who were the people that were there. I've written a lot of stories about people I've never met before. And it's in some ways, it's like writing a very detailed obituary. You're trying yeah. to talk to as many people as possible yeah. about who they were and what they accomplished and what they believed and what their values so we've were. We've talked about rock climbing and we've talked about uh, base jumping and, and wingsuits. What's another extreme sport that you think is just flirting with death? Yeah, I think a lot of the Olympic sports are. Um, I would never go down an icy run on a face first on a skeleton, on a sled, um, or or on my skis. I'm a skier, and the idea of going downhill at 90 miles an hour on what is literally a sheet of ice. Well, you know what's interesting for me, John, is you have to do it with abandon. Absolutely. It's rare that we do anything with total abandon. 
Right. And I've talked to, to Olympic athletes about this. Like they can't do that halfway. No, um, it's pedal to the metal, baby. Right. Because it's actually in a lot of ways more dangerous if you're just trying to do it halfway. And huh. so you have to get the gumption. And when it's your turn to go, you have to believe that you are going to make it and you can, you can do this. I, you got to factor in safety, but I would just think when you're lunging off a ski jump or when you're going downhill, or if you're in a luge, you've got to go full broke. Full broke. Yeah, because anything less than that uh, could actually be more dangerous. And um, yeah. as soon as you let those doubts creep in, then maybe you change. And, and in some of these sports, we're talking about just minutia. I mean, just in luge, for example, all you do is twitch your shoulders to make the thing turn. Yeah. And so if you wince, you that could be the end. And that's the minuscule that you get to report on that we don't appreciate. I try to, yes. Yeah. One critic wrote that John Branch covers sports the way Lyle Lovett writes country music. John's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the people he's profiled for the New York Times who often engage in the most adrenaline pumping of extreme sports. He includes their stories in his book, Side Country. John's also written a profile of a Utah rodeo family and how they try to keep a part of the Old West alive. That book's called The Last Cowboys. We have links to John's earlier interviews with us with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. John, I don't know if people are going to die at a rodeo, but from reading your articles on that, it's clear they're going to get injured and they come back for more and more. What's your insight on on uh, riding a bucking bronco just for a sport? Yeah, I think I described it as uh, eight seconds of a car wreck. I have never met tougher athletes than the rodeo athletes. Um, and it, it's because they know they're going to get hurt. They know it's just a matter of time. And they also aren't getting paid very much. If they don't ride eight seconds, they get zero dollars. They are doing it for that chance. And, and if they get hurt, they will jump back in the truck, maybe drive 500 more miles to a rodeo for the next night and try to do it again. And if they don't get on the horse or don't get on the bull, they have no chance of making any money. So these guys just suck it up more than any athletes I've ever seen. And they know they're going to get hurt. And once you're hurt, it's easy to get hurt again. But they've got a grueling schedule. What do they do? They do three rodeos in a weekend. Yeah. I mean, they'll do 100 rodeos a year, most of them crammed into the summer. And so from June to August, they are on the road back and forth across the interstates of the West, going to rodeo to rodeo to rodeo. You know, that's another dimension of this addiction a lot of um, extreme athletes have is once they're injured, they keep, they keep having to perform. And when you're injured, it's, it's tougher to perform to the limit you want to perform at. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the injuries snowball and they just keep thinking, if I can just heal through this, I'll be back to where I was. And I, one thing that I've found with every athlete, it happens in rodeo, it happens with Olympic athletes, is that they're all trying to figure out their exit strategy. They know there's a short window for what they do. It might be till they're 30, it might be till 35, it might be till the next Olympic cycle. And they're just trying to get there and try to maximize themselves so they can get out safely and figure out what they're going to do with the rest of their life. That's probably a challenge people that get all of this adrenaline have is your exit strategy. And then how do you provide for that once you're no longer in the saddle? Right. When you're no longer in the saddle or you're hurt. You know, in the case yeah. of the rodeo family that I wrote about, it's by handing it down to the next generation and just sort of living vicariously then through the kids that do what you used to do. There you go. That would be a solution where you wouldn't get depressed, that you've, you have a heritage. You have a heritage. You, you, you stay connected to it. Uh, John Branch. It's the, the book is Side Country, Tales of Death and Life from the Backroads of Sports. 
You wrote an article called Deliverance from 27,000 Feet about climbers and Sherpas who die on Mount Everest and the people they leave behind and the government rules starting to limit crowding and so on. Tell us a little bit about what's going on in Mount Everest. Is that a, a unique situation where it's just like the ultimate, so it's got all these congestion problems? It just seems like a tragic thing if you're a, a great mountain climber to be dealing with a bunch of rookies cluttering up the trail to the summit of the greatest mountain on the planet. Yeah, you will find the greatest mountain climbers avoid Everest with all they can uh, because it's just a crowd place. It's a Disneyland. It's a place where people come who, in many cases, have no business being there. It's a bucket list item for them. And so it has gotten crowded. And there are um, climbing companies in Kathmandu that maybe don't have your best interest at heart because they just don't have the the financial pull or the right training and that sort of thing. So it, it has become dangerous. And, and again, Everest is one of those places where several people are dying for the most part every year. So John, what, what do you think that the greatest accomplishment or goal these days is for a mountain climber? I think it certainly depends on the mountain climber. Um, there are people who are, are trying to, to climb all 8,000, all the, I think, 14, 8,000 meter peaks. Some are trying to do that without oxygen. Um, but, you know, when I covered the guys that were covering El Capitan and the Don Wall, one of the things that Kevin Jorgensen, one of the climbers, said was, find your own Don Wall. This was his Don Wall. This was his, I know it's going to be the, probably the greatest accomplishment of my life. I know it's going to be in my obituary someday. What's your Don Wall? And that's always stuck with me. I love that. Because I have a real short Don Wall, and it's I just hiked around Mount Blanc. And for me, to go to the limit six days in a row was really a personal accomplishment. <laughs> it's nothing for a mountaineer. Not but at all. I was so proud. I felt so good. And it was something I'll never stop being thankful for. Well, you'll, you'll appreciate this. My Don Wall is probably taking my kids through a hut-to-hut hike through the Dolomites <laughs> and, and making sure all four of us survived. It was not the, the craziest thing we'll all ever do, but it was a great experience and it was nerve-wracking in all those ways when you're watching your kids, you know, step to the edge. So do these adrenaline hikers or these adrenaline sports people that you've covered and you've spent years and years covering them, do they ever cross the finish line or is there are they, are they just addicted to adrenaline? Is it just endlessly, I got to do that. I got to do more. I got to do it again, you know? Yeah, that's a great question. I think they are always trying to find some other way. So if they can no longer climb, they will drive cars or they'll become trail runners or something. For the most part, people are wired that way where they need something that scares them that they can then overcome. And if it's not climbing, it'll be something else. So I just want to close our discussion, and this has been a fascinating uh, chance to explore what you've been exploring for years. I'm so, I'm so impressed. We've been talking about adrenaline sports and uh, extreme sports that can be deadly, and you've, you've been there. Uh, you've talked to people, um, and I just wanted to ask you, what have you learned from the widows? Yeah, um, that's the toughest part, and the, the, the interviews that stick with me are the ones talking to the widows. And it's the regret. It's the what if, what if I had done something differently? What if they had done something differently? It's the people left behind. So as much as the headlines are about the people who died, most of these stories are about the people who who were left behind and what they're going through. It's the other side of the story that you don't hear very much about. Wow. That gives it a whole other dimension. And that makes good journalism. I hope so. John Branch, thanks for being with us and best wishes with your continued sports writing. Thank you so much, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kaz Mora Hall, and Donna Vardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. 
You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.